I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Second Chance Podcast. I'm Raphael Rowe, your host. This show centers around the question of who deserves a second chance, who has the power to grant it, and what it means. Our guests come from diverse backgrounds and experiences, including those who have received second chances and those who some might feel are undeserving. We'll also be looking at how a person's journey can lead them to a second chance. Dr. Kylie Moore Gilbert, a British-Australian academic, endured 804 days as a rebellious hostage of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. She was accused of being an agent for Mossad, MI6, or a spy for Australia. She was imprisoned in the infamous Even Prison, where she was kept in isolation from the outside world and subjected to relentless interrogations. Despite being told repeatedly that she would be forgotten, Kylie refused to confess and rejected the ever-changing accusations. The Australian government dismissed the charges as baseless, but she was convicted by the notorious hanging judge of Iran and sentenced to 10 years in prison. Although no evidence was ever presented to support the charges against her, she was subjected to the harshest of conditions. After a year in solitary confinement, Kylie was suddenly transferred to Kwachak, known as the world's worst woman's prison, located on the outskirts of Tehran. Finally, after a complicated prisoner swap involving four countries, Kylie regained her freedom. In this interview and her book, Uncaged Sky, My 804 Days in an Iranian Prison, she shares the story of her harrowing experience and how she overcame it. You can also listen to my interview with Kylie on my audiobook, You Are Accused, available on Audible. Click the link in the description or search You Are Accused by Raphael Rowe to get your copy. Kylie, tell me where you are in the world and how life is for you this present day. Hi, Raphael. Um, I am located in Melbourne, Australia. 
Life is pretty good for me at the moment. I'm one and a half years now, roughly, since being released from prison. And I've left my job in academia and have actually just written a book and published that about the time I spent in prison in Iran, which I'm busy promoting and and travelling around giving talks about at the moment. It's quite a title, isn't it? 804 Days in an Iranian Jow. And I suppose your choice of words and the number you use, it conjures up this image that you kind of ticked off the days. And I know that all too well. I kept a diary when I was in prison. And every day I marked, as the days went from hundreds to thousands, I had, uh, you know, I put the day in my diary every time I made an entry, whether it was day 200 or whether it was day 1004, etc. Why did you choose that title, 804 Days in an Iranian Jow? And the other point here is Jow as opposed to prison, because they do mean two very different things, don't they? Um, I'm not really sure what the difference between jail and prison is, actually. I always use the, the two words interchangeably. But certainly the 804 days, I mean, I called the book The Uncaged Sky and and that's the subtitle 804 Days in an Iranian Prison. And I guess I I wanted to go for a more literary style cover for the book and name for the book. And um, the sky is a common motif that features throughout my story. You'd probably know that, you know, as a prisoner, when you look up at the sky, it's, it's really the only symbol of freedom that you can perceive around you really and the sky represents so much for you as a prisoner it's unattainable but it's also a reminder of you know that there is free people and free life going on outside I mean I used to watch the birds wheeling above my head and nesting in the trees and you know the the stars and the moon sometimes too I I, if I got a glimpse of them at all and it, it meant you know a lot to me symbolically but I think the 104 days, I mean, it just underscores, I guess, the the length of time and the burden of that time on me as a prisoner, you know, for the reader. You were an academic doing some research um, around the Bahrainian community and you travelled to Iran to continue that research and, from what I've read, attend a conference. I've not had the privilege of reading your book yet because this has been set up quite short notice. What was the work that you were proposing to do or were doing when you travelled out to Iran? So I um, was invited to come to Iran by an Iranian university and my research project was on the Shia community in Bahrain, which is an Arab country in the Persian Gulf. And this university in Qom, which is a very conservative religious city south of the capital Tehran, it um, invited me as a a part of a group of foreigners all around the world that it invited to come to a a seminar on Shia Islam. So it was directly relevant to my research and that invited me because of my research profile. But Iran itself was never the subject of my research. It was more of a tangential side link, I guess, to what I was really focusing on, which was Bahrain. So I'm not really an Iran studies expert, but I went to Iran for what I thought would be three weeks at the invitation of this university in order to sort of network and meet other colleagues in my field from all over the world and also Iranian colleagues. And uh, while I was there, I did a few interviews with some Bahrainis who were resident in Iran for my research on Bahrain. 
And this was in 2018. And from what I understand, and it's been documented, you were about to leave the country, but were arrested at Tehran airport. Can you tell me what happened? Yeah, so I had checked into my flight on Emirates and um, had deposited my bags on the carousel and I got my boarding pass and I headed off in the direction of passport control and that's when a group of men approached me. There, there were about four of them. They were all dressed in black. They had no uniform, no badge, no insignia. They didn't look official to me. They could have been anyone, basically. And they said, we have a warrant for your arrest. And they brandished this printout A4 piece of paper, all in Farsi, which I don't speak or I didn't speak at the time, and claimed that this was an official arrest warrant. So I, I was terrified. I mean, the guys themselves didn't look official. The piece of paper didn't look official. So I didn't even know whether the whole thing was a scam or whether these were gangsters or terrorists or, you know, who they were. But it turned out they were a, a semi-state actor within Iran, the Revolutionary Guards. So they're not the police or the border force or even the Iranian intelligence ministry, but a kind of a rival faction within Iran, which is only kind of semi-governmental. And they took me away to an interrogation room in the airport, interrogated me there for, I don't know, five hours or so. I, I missed my flight. And then following that, it was evening, nighttime by then, they put me in a blacked out car and took me back into Tehran, where I was interrogated overnight in a safe house. Uh, and following that, they put me in a hotel, which was under their control and had cameras and, and voice recorders. I wasn't allowed to leave the hotel and they continued my interrogation for another week each day in that hotel room before following that week, throwing me into Evin prison. Evin prison being one of the most notorious prisons in Iran. But before we talk about your ordeal of being in that prison, I mean, we, we've all been in that situation where we've put our bags on the carousel, we've collected whatever duty-free we want, and then we head towards passport control, thinking about what we're going to do when we get back to wherever it is we're, we're heading to. But then to be approached by four, you know, kind of dressed guys who then take you away, it must have been, and I'm sure you've been asked this question a million times, it must have been a terrifying ordeal for you, um, not just when they approached you and the things that were going through your mind, but then to go through what you went through next, which is an interrogation for five hours and then being removed from the airport and taken to even prison. At that point, or, or during any of this um, interrogation period, did you find out what you were being accused of? No, not specifically. Not at that early moment when I was very first arrested. I was sure there'd been some sort of mistake or misunderstanding that they'd got the wrong person or they'd got the wrong end of the stick. And so I was just trying to explain that, hey, I'm just an academic researcher. You guys invited me here. Uh, I've done nothing wrong. I haven't been, you know, I, I'm not anti-Iran. I'm not trying to undermine the Iranian regime or anything like that. I just want to get on my flight and go home. And you know, from my perspective, I had nothing to hide because I hadn't done anything wrong. So I was 
being as open with them as possible in those early days, trying to explain that, you know, they were mistaken and hoping that the whole thing would be cleared up and they would let me go home. It, it wasn't until I was thrown in prison and then interrogated in an interrogation block within the prison for a further three months or so that I came to understand they were building a case around me that would accuse me of espionage. Accused of espionage. And, and, and you didn't really find out the details of what you were being accused of at any point? Uh, I did find out the exact details when I first went to court to hear the Bill of Indictment. So that was maybe four months or so or five months after my arrest. I knew that they were accusing me of espionage in a general sense, but when I went to court and the translator went through line by line the Bill of Indictment, I, I came to understand how they'd crafted that narrative. And that was the first moment that I understood they were charging me with spying for Israel as well because they'd been throwing all sorts of wild and crazy accusations around in the interrogations, you know, accusing me of spying for every country under the sun and, you know, having secret meetings in various third countries with intelligence operatives and all sorts of insane Hollywood James Bond style scenarios. So when I first went for that court session, that was the first time that I actually heard the real details of what they were going to, you know, put me on trial for. It seems so James Bond, as you rightly say, that you are being accused of espionage. Did you understand, given the academic work and the research and the countries that you were focusing your studies and research on was it something that I hesitate to say you you understood but was it a, a, an area that you would have been familiar with based on knowledge of other people who may have been um, or had gone through the same experience and I think Ratcliffe you, you know the British woman mm -hmm. who herself went through a similar experience to yourself I mean were these things already kind of circulating so that when you were going through these interrogation periods you were familiar with the tactics of these authorities and how you found yourself in that situation? The short answer is no I think maybe I'd vaguely heard of Solari Ratcliffe's case but I wasn't at all familiar with it and I really had no idea, you know, she's obviously an Iranian citizen, I'm a complete foreigner, you know, I had no idea that Iran would arrest not only their own citizens in such a manner because we know that Iran is a nasty authoritarian regime and it, you know, abuses the human rights of its own people. But I never imagined that visiting the country for three weeks on invitation as an academic could lead to me being treated the same, you know, as a complete foreigner, as a tourist, essentially. And um, I, I had no idea that this hostage diplomacy phenomenon was a thing in Iran and that they routinely in arrested people they knew to be innocent in order to extort their governments to get some concession or some form of leverage over them diplomatically. So I, I had to, you know, go on a steep learning curve really in prison to figure all of that out and I started to hear the cases of others told to me by fellow inmates after having been thrown in prison. But before I visited Iran, I, I wasn't really aware of it at all as a phenomenon. Accused of espionage, what, what did that mean to you? How did you interpret that? What was it that you 
was now challenging. I mean, it's one thing being accused of murder. It's one thing being accused of a crime of a different nature where evidence has to now be presented. But my understanding of being accused of something like espionage doesn't necessarily conjure up images of evidence-based information. So how did you interpret the accusation of being accused of espionage? I interpreted it as an entirely politically motivated charge. There was no evidence whatsoever and the court was completely farcical. Like we can't even call it a court. You know, I eventually went to court after nine or ten months or so and I wasn't allowed to appoint my own lawyer, meet my lawyer before the court to discuss my case. I wasn't allowed to present evidence in my defence in court. I wasn't able to collect documents or testimony of others to defend myself. Uh, the court wasn't even translated into English for me. So like the, the various discussions happening between the judge and the prosecutor and the lawyers, none of that was translated for me. I literally just went, sat there and, you know, answered some questions when prompted and then was convicted. The entire thing was politicised from beginning to end and there was no evidence base whatsoever. Basically, they crafted this completely bonkers narrative uh, based on various details they'd gotten out of my emails or out of my um, computer or phone, um, which they'd accessed after arresting me. And, you know, even the most tiniest irrelevant link to somebody or CC'd on an email about this or that, you know, was twisted into some sort of crazy James Bond style um, propaganda that they then um, used in the media within Iran domestically to justify my arrest as well. And, you know, the group that arrested me, as I said, they're not really the Iranian government. They're a hardline Islamist group, which their worldview is actually really scary and really um, based on conspiracy theories. And, you know, the way they see the world is shaped so much by th this kind of thinking that crafting such a crazy narrative around me and my so-called crimes was pretty normal for these guys. You know, they, they used to, I, I once listed every conspiracy under the sun that I could think of, you know, from JFK's assassination to, you know, 9-11 being an inside job to, um, you know, even COVID and its origins. And they whole scale signed up to every single one of them. You know, they would tell me, of course, the US didn't really land on the moon. And, you know, we believe COVID is actually biological warfare that's been launched against China by the US under Trump. You know, they had some utterly bonkers ideas. So given that truth wasn't something they were particularly interested in, I think my court case reflected that and the fact that, you know, evidence wasn't something they were really too bothered with collecting or presenting. I'm trying to get my head around the fact that after you'd been taken from the airport and placed in even prison, that you were not given any access to any legal advice properly. And for the next nine months, you had to wait until you appeared in court where probably for the first time, and I don't know if anything happened before this, you could present your own challenge. What were you able to do in those nine months um, to challenge what you were being accused of? I had no means of challenging it at all. I was banned from um, consular access during the interrogation phase. So I didn't see any representative of my government. And I'm a British citizen and an Australian citizen. So I, I demanded to see both consulates. 
um, but I wasn't allowed to see any of them until they'd finished interrogating me and referred my case to the judiciary. Then I saw the Australian ambassador three times and then was banned from further consular visits and from all phone calls to, to family as a punishment, which is actually against international law. Um, you know, as a foreigner arrested overseas, I have a right to consular assistance and the judge signed an order banning me from consular assistance as a punishment because I was very badly behaved. And, you know, they were depriving me of my rights in in every possible way. They were psychologically torturing me. I was kept in solitary confinement for months in a tiny windowless box, uh, you know, I didn't even have the right to go to the toilet when I wanted to go to the toilet. I, I couldn't see a doctor when I was sick. You know, it was dreadful. And I started rebelling and resisting my captors. And as a result, they cut me off from all access to anybody on the outside who could potentially advise me, including lawyers, consular officials, my family, everybody. How do you find the strength to stand up for yourself in such horrific circumstances and I'm not just talking about what you were wrongly accused of but being held in solitary confinement in a in a windowless box as you describe it under the conditions that you were being held being denied access to the legalities that you should have been allowed access to being denied your human rights and prisoner rights I mean how did you find the physical and mental strength to withstand that because I, I know what it's like being in solitary but I can't imagine what it would be like for someone like yourself who as I say was about to board a flight home but then finds themselves in solitary confinement in this notorious prison. It was horrific but I think I channeled my anger into strength in a way. I wasn't from the beginning resisting them. During the interrogation phase, you know, I, I was trying to explain that I'm innocent and trying to show them that I'd done nothing wrong and I was innocent. But once I understood that they were charging me with espionage, that they intended on keeping me in jail and that my ordeal would be going on for some time more, I became more and more angry. And I honestly had absolutely nothing to lose because when you when everything is taken away from you, everything you hold dear and you're completely alone and isolated, you know, you can't even call your family and let them know you're okay. I, I had absolutely nothing and someone with nothing to lose is a dangerous person because they'll be willing to lash out and do anything really because, you know, I'd already hit rock bottom. I couldn't really go any further down than that. And so I just became apathetic and stopped caring about myself or my own welfare. And I started to occupy parts of the prison and protest. I was in touch with a number of other prisoners whilst in solitary confinement via a note passing network and um, speaking in air conditioning vents. And these ladies really opened my eyes to what was happening, how the system works in Iran, what the parameters were of my detention, what I should expect in court. They gave me a lot of information and I used that information and my own anger and rage to, I guess, protest and resist wherever I could. It sounds like a, a really brave thing to do um, inside such a, a, a an horrendous a, a prison was this Kylie before Kylie ended up in this predicament? And did you have this this kind of strength of character within yourself? I'm sure there was elements that existed that, that kind of developed and came out 
because you talk about protests and occupying corners of the prison to, to protest. I mean, where did you find the Kylie that gave you the strength to do that or did she already exist? I mean, I know you talked about you turned your anger into action, but I'm just wondering whether, you know, as an academic, you already had this in you or it was built in you from your relationship with other prisoners and your your strength of character, knowing that you were being accused of something you didn't do? That's a really good question. I, I have thought about that and I do think I always had it in me, but I didn't realise it. And I think all of us do. I mean, you might think the same because of your ordeal as well, that you find an inner reserve of strength that you didn't realise you had. You, you find out that you're stronger and tougher than you might have otherwise expected. And I think it is who I am as a person, but I just didn't realise it because I hadn't been tested to that extent in my life prior to being thrown in prison. But I've always been a stubborn person and I've always stood up for myself when push comes to shove. So I do think it was in my character to stand up against my captors and, you know, not let them force me into submission and be just weak and, and you know, be a victim without fighting back and, um, you know, showing them that what they were doing to me wasn't acceptable. But, yeah, I mean, I think those aspects of myself came out more as a result of my predicament and I discovered that about myself after being thrown in prison. What was it like in, in prison? Because, you know, I travel the world and go to prisons and discover something new and different in every prison, whereas most people think prisons are the same. You know, you're locked in a cell, you're, you're let out for exercise, you food. I mean, I'm just trying to think you had no access to anybody in the period of time that you were being held in solitary. I mean, things like clothing, things like food, things like access to phone calls, things like exercise, getting out in the fresh air, and I think you... You described a very potent thing that people often don't realise. You can only see the sky in prison because the walls around you restrict your vision and therefore looking up and taking in the sky is the only thing that links you with the outside world. And I know that all too well. But what about things like clothing and food and just the day-to-day -day existing in prison when you have no support on the outside? Yeah, it was really hard. We had to wear a uniform and in Iran, you know, it's obviously a very Islamist country, so we had to dress in a conservative Islamic fashion. So I had to wear a hijab and a chador. A chador is basically like a, a loose sheet that you put over your head that falls all the way down to the floor and covers your whole body and your head. So I had to wear that on top of my hijab. And, um, you know, like loose pants and a, a long um, coat that came below my knees called a manto, which is also an Islamic dress in Iran. So I had to wear many layers of clothing. Most of them didn't fit me. Most of them were old and dirty and, you know, just sort of a piece of elastic holding the waistband together or whatever. And I had to wash them whenever I could in a tub in the sink or in the shower with me when I was showering. Uh, they wouldn't be washed industrially or for us or whatever. And even getting hold of a second uniform that I could wear when I was washing the first uniform was a challenge. Their attention to hygiene was terrible. Um, the toilets were utterly foul and probably riddled with all sorts of diseases. And uh, any cleaning products were banned because they claimed that 
us prisoners would, you know, drink the bleach or something or harm ourselves if they allowed us to, to clean our toilets with cleaning products. So it was really a terrible state that we had to deal with. Food was like very basic prison fare delivered three times a day. Uh, When I was in solitary, they'd just open the flap of the door um, at the bottom of the door and push in the food in a styrofoam container. It was a white piece of flatbread, lavosh bread for breakfast, uh, some rice and a kind of a stodgy stew, a greasy stew of some sort for lunch and for dinner, some sort of deep fried monstrosity. (laughs) Generally, that's what, what we had. Uh, after a while in prison, the embassy was allowed to come and put money on a card for me. And once a month, I was able to fill in a shopping list and have some items delivered to the prison with that money. Uh, so I was able to buy myself some snacks and some sanitary items and some shampoo and conditioner, this sort of thing. But at the beginning, it was very, very basic. I had absolutely nothing. I didn't even have a proper toothbrush. Uh, nor shampoo for my hair, nothing. It was really, really challenging. And, you know, even Iranian families aren't allowed to bring food or anything like that for their loved ones in prison. You're very much cut off from the outside. Uh, And it's deliberately so because they want to dehumanise you and and break you down as well for purposes of interrogation. And, And given what you were being accused of, espionage, how did it break you? Because I'm sure even if they didn't break you to have you confess to something you didn't do, being in the conditions that you were in must have broken parts of you, even though they were replaced with probably stronger parts of you. But I just wonder how the guards reacted to your resistance and pushback and fight back when you found the strength and 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 coupled with that your mental and physical health in terms of coping because surely it took its toll it did the first few weeks I spent in solitary were among the hardest of my life just the emotional anguish and the pain of being left alone inside your own head for for me what was 23 hours a day inside a little box without a window without any stimulation whatsoever you know you do go insane in there because you're used to having an active mind and using your brain for various activities and suddenly you had absolutely nothing to do and just hours and hours to whittle away it's really 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 tough you do go a little bit crazy after a while i learned various techniques of slowing down my brain and trying to inhabit increasingly my long-term memories and not notice the passage of time and let go of any strong emotions and just try and live in a bubble of apathy. Uh, And I guess that was a way that I was able to tame my mind and withstand the deprivations of solitary confinement. Later on, when I started resisting and fighting them, they did take a lot of of things away from me. They They beat me, um, especially on one occasion. I was physically assaulted as a result of getting caught leaking a letter outside the prison. You know, as I mentioned, I had all my embassy visits and phone calls to family cancelled as a punishment for my resistance. Uh, I was thrown back in solitary at various points for resisting. 
um, you know, had my shopping lists cancelled, had pen and paper taken away, books taken away. I, I had pen and paper and books sporadically throughout my time. A lot of the, the time I spent in solitary was without that. So they took everything away from me that they could, occasionally physically assaulted me, but also my resistance won me a lot of concessions. I went on hunger strikes. Um, I climbed onto the roof of the interrogation block and, and stayed up there and refused to come down for several hours and managed to win myself a meeting with the prosecutor as a result. I, I did win some concessions. The hunger strikes were important as well in, in terms of getting informers out of my cell because at times they would send spies to come and try and get information out of me through just living side by side with me every day, which was really, really hard. And these people made my life a, a nightmare. And, you know, going on hunger strike was the only way I could get them extracted from my cell. So I did, you know, win concessions along the way, but I also was quite severely punished. And to be honest, I looking back and reflecting on it, I do think that it gave me something to do and to occupy my time. And it also gave me back a sense of agency, which is really important when you're sort of essentially a powerless victim in a cell sitting there waiting for someone to come and rescue you, feeling like you have agency and you have some measure of control over your fate is part of your strength. And so my resistance and my refusal to just let them walk all over me, actually, I think, helped my recovery from what I went through because I feel I can come out with my head my head held high and I'm not ashamed of the way I conducted myself. Even with the inner strength that you discovered to cope and deal with and fight back, we all in those situations, and I've been in that situation under different circumstances, but I know all too well much of what you're talking about. At what point did, did your family your, your immediate family back in Australia and wherever else they are in the world, when did they first find out what was happening to you? I was forced to send a text message to them on the night of my arrest uh, with some bogus, dodgy-sounding story saying, because they knew I'd checked in for my flight. And several hours later after my arrest, I was I texted them under the instructions of my captors to say, oh, I've got this new research opportunity and I'm going to stay in Iran for a few more weeks. Please don't worry, I'm okay. I've just decided to extend my trip. This is the first they'd heard and I knew it would ring alarm bells because they knew I'd checked into my flight. I wouldn't have just suddenly, whilst already at the airport, come up with a new research opportunity and extended my trip. That was just not plausible. And I made sure the language I used when writing the text was very formal and clunky so they knew it wasn't natural and coming from me. So they knew something was wrong the moment, you know, I didn't get on my flight and, and come home. But at some point, the Australian government told them, essentially, I think, that it was the Revolutionary Guards who'd captured me and that I was in Evan prison. I just wanted to let you know that the Second Chance podcast is also available for viewing on our YouTube channel, at Second Chance Podcast. So if you want to enhance your listening experience with the visuals, check it out. I also wanted to ask for your support to help me grow this podcast. All you have to do is click on the subscribe, follow and like buttons wherever you listen to the Second Chance Podcast. If you can spare another few minutes to comment and rate the show, that would be brilliant. By doing so, you'll be assisting us in bringing in more guests and creating more content for the show. 
It only takes a second, but it makes all the difference. Thank you. What help did you get in the time that you were in in prison awaiting your, your trial from the consulates that you mentioned you approached, the British and the Australian consulates? And did you feel during that period that you were able to have contact and conversations with them that they gave you the level of support that you rightly deserved or expected? Initially, I was not particularly happy with the support they'd given me. Uh, I felt that they just kind of parroted at me all sorts of diplomatic speak that meant nothing like we are raising your situation at the highest levels of government and your incarceration is a priority for the for the government and this kind of talk which told me absolutely nothing and was of zero use to me and I found that quite frustrating because I would say just tell me what you're doing what's happening give me some actual concrete information and they wouldn't and I wasn't really convinced that very much was happening at all in those early few months um, they were going through the motions, but perhaps my case wasn't a priority and they were talking to the wrong people as well. They were talking to the Iranian government, not directly to my captors, who, as I mentioned, were a separate organisation. So they were following dip diplomatic norms rather than doing what was necessary to get me out in a speedily fashion. The, these diplomatic norms, Kylie, often result in, from what I've heard in other cases, the authorities, the consulates, the governments sort of asking you and your family to stay quiet, don't make a, a noise publicly because it could make your situation worse or their attempt to rescue you, if you like, worse. Is that how they approached your case? Is that something you accepted or not? Yes, you're very right in saying that this quiet diplomacy strategy seems to be the main modus operandi of all foreign governments of Western countries. And absolutely the Australian government and the British government were adamant that my family don't go to the media, keep everything quiet. They kept it quiet for 12 months, but then it was leaked out and the media started reporting on my case almost exactly 12 months after my arrest. I did not want this. And I had been saying to my family on the phone after two, three months, please go to the media, go to the media, expose what's happening. And I was having my phone calls cut and being banned temporarily from further calls as a punishment because I said such things on the phone to them. And they didn't listen because the government was leaning heavily on them and telling them, your daughter could be harmed in prison if you speak out. And what family member would risk that? So it, it was a really thorny issue. But I didn't see any evidence as to why I would be harmed in prison. There were plenty of other Iranian prisoners that had public campaigns behind them, whether they be dual national like Nazanin Zaghari or a lot of prominent political prisoners within um, Iran who are just Iranian citizens whose plights were well known and reported on extensively internationally. So I hadn't seen any evidence of anyone getting harmed as a result of that, only that perhaps it would make their situation better. And my own case bore that out because when I was when my situation was made public one year later, I noticed that having the spotlight on the prison and the way I was being treated from the media meant that they had to treat me better. And they had to, for example, 
stop weaponizing access to medical care against me and start allowing me to see a doctor whenever I was sick or whenever I demanded to see a doctor, you know, that they they couldn't punish me as severely as they had been before as well. So I actually saw that my conditions improved as a result of media attention, not the opposite. And I'm really not convinced that it's in the best interests of the detainee. It's probably in the best interests of governments to keep everything quiet because then they're not answering difficult questions and they don't have public pressure campaigns behind them breathing down their necks, asking them if they're doing enough. But for the actual person concerned, obviously it's different on a case-by-case basis, but certainly for Iran and in my case, Media attention helped, not hindered. Eventually, you stood in the dock at a court in Iran, accused of espionage. Just share with me what happened or just talk me through what happened at your court case. You mentioned that you got sentenced to 10 years, but just explain to me what happened at the the court and whether you were or felt that you were fairly represented and had the right legal team on your side doing what was necessary to try and help you? Uh, I had no true legal team on my side at all. I had a lawyer whom I'd never, I'd, I'd seen him once and I'd never discussed my case with him, never. So this poor guy was the only person nominally on my side in the whole room. He was surrounded by Revolutionary Guard interrogators on all sides looking over his shoulder at what he was writing in his notebook and intimidating him. The judge was hostile. The judge was a puppet of the Revolutionary Guards. He The, the, the sentence was predetermined and he was just there to rubber stamp it. My lawyer was barely allowed to speak. I was barely allowed to speak. I wasn't allowed to present evidence in my defence. I wasn't allowed to have documents or witness testimony that I would present in my defence. It was just a kangaroo court from start to finish, and it was a very hostile atmosphere and all conducted in a language. Where were the British consulate and the Australian consulate at this point, the representatives that should have been looking after your interests? Where were they at this point? They were not there. I mean, I don't know if they tried to get into the court or not. I don't even know if they were aware that that was the date I was going on trial, but I saw not a soul from any embassy or consulate. It was just me in this bear pit surrounded by, you know, these Revolutionary Guard thugs on all sides with my lawyer cowering in the corner in the back of the room, not allowed to talk to me. That's what I had to go through um, for three days worth of trial. What happened eventually in the court? You were sentenced to 10 years, convicted of? Convicted of espionage, sentenced to 10 years. And, um, yeah, the, the judge pulled me into his office, sat me down, and via an interpreter told me, this is your sentence. You have the opportunity to write a three-sentence response. So I wrote, obviously, that I'm objecting and I'm innocent and whatever. And then he said, okay, you can go now. And they sent me back to prison, and that was that. So it was a very, very quick procedure with almost no opportunity to object. I filed an appeal via my lawyer. I never saw the appeal. I was never allowed to instruct my lawyer about the content of it, but I know my lawyer filed an appeal. I was never brought to an appeals court. I never even knew the name of the judge, but some unknown judge signed that my appeal had been rejected, and that was the end of my recourse to so-called justice. The media campaign that I read, or I read stuff that the the Iran 
authorities, the Revolutionary Guard, they, you know, embarked on this kind of campaign trying to justify what they did by accusing you of attempting to steal state secrets for Israel. I also read that there were attempts to recruit you as a spy. Is there any truth in those allegations in terms of what people have reported? Yes, they attempted to recruit me as a spy numerous times. I think this was one of the main motivating factors for my arrest. They mentioned it to me on the very first night of my arrest informally. This is one reason for my resistance because they were trying to use the 10-year sentence as blackmail against me to force me to agree to be recruited and then spy for them in exchange for my freedom. And I was refusing to do that and fighting them and it was a kind of a standoff or a war of attrition between me and them because they said, look, we're going we're gonna to not enter into any negotiations with your government and we're going to let you rot in prison for 10 years unless you agree to spy for us. And I was saying, I refuse to spy for you. Let me rot in prison then, but piss off, basically. And they were trying to break me down and were hoping I would cave. And so they were making my conditions worse and worse. And I was getting stubborn and fighting back. And in the end, the, the stalemate was broken when I managed to leak some letters out of the prison. And in one of those letters, I stated that they were trying to recruit me and that I was rejecting their off, you know, offer of recruitment. And when that was published in the media, I lost my value as a potential recruit. Because if everybody knew that they were interested in recruiting me, then nobody would believe, you know, if I was going around collecting information for them that, I, you know, I, I was doing that of my own volition. So I managed to devalue myself as a recruit. And following that, they entered into meaningful negotiations over my release. What about the kind of organisations beyond the embassy and the consulate? Were they active? And I don't know who they are, but I suspect there are organisations, non-government organisations in Iran and other places around the world who try to help people like you? I mean, were they present during the time that you were being held in prison? I never saw any international organisations in prison. But once my situation was made public, on the outside, in Europe, in North America, in Australia, a lot of human rights NGOs were campaigning for me. Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, PEN, uh, a variety of different Iranian exile NGOs like the Center for Human Rights in Iran. A lot of them were campaigning for me and were actually very helpful in, I guess, getting my situation to the top of the government agenda before it became time to negotiate my release. The subtitle of your book, 804 Days in Iranian Jail, suggests that you didn't spend 10 years as you were sentenced to what led to your eventual release, Kylie? So the Australian government pulled off what was a phenomenal diplomatic feat, really, and I'm very, very grateful to them for that. I was released in a prisoner exchange involving three countries. There were three convicted terrorists who were in Thailand. They were Iranian Revolutionary Guard members, so they belonged to the same organisation that had taken me hostage. They wanted their own guys, basically. They didn't want just any old Iranian criminal. They wanted their own guys out. These three terrorists, Australia got Thailand to agree to release in exchange for my release from Iran. And obviously the question is, what did Thailand get out of that? And I don't know, and I'd love to know. But it was some sort of trilateral deal 
the Australian government sent an envoy called Nick Warner, who was a very senior intelligence um, head in Australia, over to negotiate with the Revolutionary Guards directly in the end. And they put together that deal. And the same plane that picked me up from Tehran and took me out of the country had earlier picked those terrorists up from Bangkok and taken them to Iran. So the whole thing was micromanaged by the Australian government and it was quite, you know, a phenomenal deal they put together, actually. Talk me through what it was like the day you were told to pack your stuff, you're going home. Gosh, I just didn't believe it. Like I... I had had my hopes dashed so many times before. It wasn't the first time I'd been told it's over, you're going home soon, you know, just hang on a few more days. And I just couldn't believe it. Like I I wouldn't let myself hope. So I just felt nothing. I felt numb. I was worried it was a trick or it was another attempt to sort of break me or humiliate me. But in the end, I was taken from my cell, driven to the gates of the prison stood in front of a TV crew, prodded into participating in some propagandistic interview for their state TV, which I did my best to derail by, you know, abusing them as much as possible and and complaining about the prison conditions. And then taken from there to the ambassador's residence in Tehran and from there to the airport where I was put on that plane and eventually flown out. So I, I was really in shock I wouldn't quite let myself hope or believe it 100% until really the moment that I crossed out of Iranian airspace and I could properly breathe and say, okay, they can't get you now, they can't take it back, you really are free. When you arrive home in Australia, and I'm sure as ecstatic as you and your relatives and family were, what people often forget is it's not all champagne popping and There is the element, I'm free, I've got my life back. But there are bigger issues to deal with beyond that because you've just spent two years of your life in prison for a crime you didn't commit, being accused of something you didn't do. So when that ethoria dies down after a couple of days, Kylie's on her own again. Kylie's isolated in her own mind. People might be buzzing around you, happy making cakes or just kind of checking that you're okay. You know, you'll get those side looks because they, no matter how much you share with them, like you have with us today, the ordeal you went through, only you harbour those emotions and and the physical um, sort of bruises, if you like, and psychological bruises that, that made you cope. So I appreciate how ecstatic it is in the authoria But how did you cope, Kylie, in, in the weeks and months after you were returned home? That's such a tough question. And you're so right in that everybody's there at the very beginning and they're all, you know, there's this frenetic energy around you and everybody you know, everybody you've ever met is checking up on you, but that dies off pretty quickly. And often you present as being completely normal, if not an extra specially joyous and ecstatic version of yourself because you're so happy to have regained your freedom. And, you know, in those early few months, it's you don't really need any help or assistance at all because you're just on a high from being released and being free again. Well, I was at least. So, you know, people kind of drop away and think you're okay after that and you do get left alone. And, I mean, that's fine. You're For me anyway, I was used to being alone in a cell and I like my own company. I'm used to my own company. But it is hard because 
people forget really quickly. And especially with promoting my book, I found a lot of the questions of various journalists or even people I knew or people in the audience, people really wanted to pick over your story like it was some sort of curiosity and, and divorced entirely from the experiences you've had and not so long ago. I mean, they're still quite recent and quite fresh for me. And, you know, I have my good days and my bad days. It's it's more about just trying to work through it all, I guess, and adopt a positive attitude when I look toward the future and try and put those years behind me and make hay or, or find the silver lining, really. And I have success some days and I'm not so good at doing that on other days. But overall, I do feel that I'm doing pretty well and I'm trying to be kind to myself and recover at my own pace and not let others' expectations drive too much of what I expect of myself. But, yeah, it's it's not an easy transition and it can be really, really challenging managing other people as well as your own behaviour. Did you take a did you take away any sort of experience is is there a takeaway from you for what and, and I know you're still living it because you've got your book and you're having to kind of regurgitate some of the experiences for the journalist or people that are showing interest in your book what was your takeaway from from your experience Kylie I don't know if I can package it into one takeaway but I think I gained some really interesting insights into human nature and what makes good people do bad things and the kinds of people you can trust and not trust, what you yourself are capable of for better and worse, what resources you have within your own mind to counter stress and deprivation and cruelty, which you didn't realise you even had. You know, I've learned a lot of those lessons. I think I'm much more mistrustful of human nature and of other people's intentions than I, I was before. And, I mean, I, I don't know if that will fade with time, but I guess, you know, it's it's a bit you know being thrown in the deep end in a way in terms of the human condition. And you really do see people at, at their best but also at their very worst in prison. So I think I did learn a lot of those kind of lessons, but... There's no one particular takeaway other than the fact that the Iranian regime is a horrible and nasty authoritarian regime which treats its own people appallingly and, you know, that one shouldn't really travel to a place like Iran as a tourist or otherwise and always expect not to be touched by that. How is it impacted on your your day-to-day life? I'm trying to keep my day-to-day life as normal as possible I at the beginning it was harder for me to be around big groups of people or in you know big noisy stressful situations I kind of just wanted to retreat into the corner and isolate myself at times I'm also very very conscious of security monitoring CCTV cameras people with their phones out anything like that I just clock immediately without ever being conscious of it you know when you live your life under the gaze of cameras and you know guards are following your every move you know on the screen and will come and react if you do something wrong or you do something they don't like in your cell and you know you change your behavior you turn make sure you have your back to the camera whenever you're doing something you always keep in mind 
what vision of you the camera will be seeing in its lens and how you might be portrayed to the guard and how to disguise your movements and you know that kind of awareness has stuck with me in a way although it is you know lessening over time and I don't know if I'm changing my day-to-day habits as a result but I've certainly noticed just going about my business here in Australia I'm much much more cognizant of that stuff than I was before. I suppose during those two years that you were held in prison you built up relationships uh, acquaintances even friendships maybe with some of the women and I don't know whether the prison is a male and female prison but I suspect it you were kept in a section that was female but did you build any relationships have you been able to willing to wanting to contact any of those people I wouldn't say you left behind but are still in the prison maybe today or when you first got out yeah I was in a women's prison I was in two different women's prisons actually and I did make a lot of friends a couple of my cellmates I dedicated my book to actually Nilufar and Sepide who are still in Evan prison more than four years after their arrest and it means a lot to me to be in touch with some of them a few of my friends have been released they've been pardoned by the supreme leader or you know been given a conditional release so I have managed to speak to them and I'm in touch with them online via you know whatsapp or whatever uh, others who are still in prison today have been let out at various junctures because of getting COVID or whatever medical reasons and I've had some contact with them and I think it really helps the healing process as well because they get it they know what you've been through they've been through it too whereas a lot of others you know on the outside they could never understand so talking to them about our shared experiences is actually really therapeutic for me and I I don't feel as though I left them behind, but in a way I I feel a sense of duty to them. I want to speak up about what's happening to my friends in prison and how Iran is treating thousands of innocent people that it's rounded up and arrested for stuff that really shouldn't be a crime and for political reasons, you know, anything from refusing to wear the hijab to protesting on the streets over the cost of living to defending a client in court and then getting thrown in prison along with your client you know like I've met all sorts of remarkable brave people in prison who've done absolutely nothing wrong and have been quite heroic in taking a stand against this horrendous regime and you know I really think it's my duty to do everything I can to speak up for them as well and that was one reason why I needed to write this book because I I had to talk about what happened to me and to talk about those others that it's still happening to and their stories as well so yeah it's it's been great to be in touch with some of them obviously there are security concerns and it's not always easy to to speak to them but it does mean a lot to me that I have been able to process through some of that some of those um, difficult situations through talking with others who've been through it with me it's it's interesting because as I listen to you um, and I you know, interview a lot of people who have been to prison or been involved in the criminal justice system in various different ways. And given your experience is not that far past, i.e. you haven't been out of prison for that long, I, I do get a sense in your tone, in your voice, in your expressions about your ordeal, that it's still quite, not raw, but it's still so close in your life. How has the book helped you because it it is an important book because you are sharing and although I've not read it and I will I suspect that the book itself even without reading it goes some way 
to share in with a wider audience, not only your experience, but other people's experience and how someone can find themselves being accused of something they didn't do, um, end up in prison, go through an ordeal that profoundly changes their lives, but people way beyond yourself, like your relatives, the authorities and other people. If you were to, to sum up to the listeners what your book's purpose is, what, what would you say is, Kylie? My book's purpose is to shine a light on terrible injustices that are happening in the, the state of Iran perpetrated by a regime which claims to be guided by Islamic principles but in practice, you know, has very little respect for its own professed values. It's to draw attention to the plight of people like myself who remain behind there in prison. It also sends a message of hope and about the importance of hope and how integral having hope is to getting through any life-changing traumatic event. I, I don't want your listeners to think my book is depressing at all. I think overall the message is one of hope and of strength and I want people to know that no matter what difficult situation you're put in, whether that be a traumatic cancer diagnosis or a car accident or, you know, something horrible happening in your family, we are stronger than we think we are. And often when we have no other choice, we'll rally and we'll find that inner strength and stand up for what's right and stand up for ourselves. I'm sure it is highly inspirational. And my final questions, just to end on a, a high, if you like, is I'm sure, although the book is really challenging, and when you write a, an intimate book such as you have about a personal experience like what you went through, and I've done a similar thing, um, you, you know, you're having to reflect on some of those very dark moments, but there must be, and I hope you can share at least one with us in your book that, that talks about a high moment, maybe when you were in prison or when you were released, but what would be one of those high smiley moments, Kylie, that, that reminds people that even in the darkest moments of your, your life, there is light that gives you hope or just reminds you that humanity is not all bad? Oh, gosh, I've got so many. You know, I had a lot of fun in prison at certain times as well. At one point, again, those two cellmates I mentioned earlier, Nilufar and Sepideh, we created our own bubble in our cell and it was our own little community in a way. We had the solidarity and the friendship and the support of one another and we had a lot of fun together and happy times and we'd do a lot of um, screaming and shouting from joy and from silliness and you know, from having a sense of humour, joking around rather than screaming and shouting from pain or anguish. And um, at one point the guards had to come in and tell us, guys, can you please shut up because the other prisoners in solitary confinement can hear you screaming, like we were hysterical with laughter, for example, they can hear you screaming through the walls and they think you're being physically tortured. <laughs> but actually we were just having fun um, and there were many moments of fun. We had water fights, you know, on a hot day. We baked or cooked little things, little, um, you know, desserts and things together in a very rudimentary fashion in our cell. And I don't know, like we, we did aerobics together in our cell and we taught each other 
small lectures and courses that we devised each of us based on our expertise in various subjects and you know I was learning Farsi and they were constantly laughing at my language and all the the faux pas I I used to make um, when trying to speak and we we had a lot of fun together so and my book talks about some of these occasions and um, you know there were a lot of bright moments and attempts to find light in the darkness and that's really what got me through too in the end. That's really good to hear actually and as well as you know being out there promoting your your book for the reasons you've shared with us what is Kylie doing today I mean are you still in the academic field are you doing something completely different beyond you, you know writing your book I mean what are you doing in life today in terms of work in terms of purpose in terms of career-wise I'm still trying to figure out the career stuff I have left academia and I don't envision going back there anytime soon although never say never I like writing I'm interested in perhaps writing further in the future I'm also interested in pursuing some sort of redress for what happened to me and to many others in Iran. And I'm taking part in a few efforts internationally and here in Australia to have Magnitsky laws applied to Iranian hostage takers, uh, including in the UK, uh, the US, Canada, EU and Australia. And I've actually made an application to the Australian government with a list of names asking them to to sanction some of these known individuals. So we're pushing forward with that campaign. Uh, we, we haven't, you know, even reached the midway mark yet, but we're hoping that in all jurisdictions that have Magnitsky legislation, which basically allows governments to target individuals with travel bans and asset freezes, um, individuals who perpetrate human rights abuses, so we're hoping to sanction some of the people who took part in my hostage taking and that of other foreigners. And um, yeah, I really, really hope that the Australian government listens to, you know, my voice and that of others who are asking them to sanction some of these guys, as well as the, the UK and US as well. So I guess it's a watch this space and hope with fingers crossed that there would be some measure of redress in the future for this um, abhorrent practice. Good luck with that. And my final question is what would your, and it's hard to ask this question because it's it's a person by person basis, but what would your advice be to anybody who is accused of something they didn't do? I mean, espionage is, is up there, you know, we're talking death penalty in some countries, you know, even here in the UK. I mean, I don't know whether they still would sort of drop you from a, a noose, but, um, you know, it's one of the most serious, you know, what would your advice be to anybody, even if it's the mundane kind of accusation and it's happening to people all the time, what would your advice be to somebody who finds themselves in a situation where they're being accused um, of something that they didn't do? My advice would be to back yourself and always stand by the truth. Don't let any person, individual, organisation twist things and convince you that making a false confession or agreeing to some sort of deal is going to help you. If you didn't do it, if you're innocent, you should back that and back yourself and continue to assert your innocence and not give in to, to pressure to make a false confession or to cave on, on some, some demands that might be put to you. I think it, it's probably more important in countries that do have the death penalty and are authoritarian because in Iran, for example, that is often used to sentence somebody to death, a false confession obtained under torture or under duress. 
it's really, really critical that people for their own self-respect as well stand up for themselves and continue to affirm their innocence if they actually haven't done anything wrong. Kylie, thank you so much for, for joining me today and, and sharing your story and good luck with with your book and I would urge people to go out there and, and read it because I'm sure they will, will learn a lot, not just about your story, but something that they can take away for their own life um, or for somebody that they care about who themselves might find themselves in that situation, not being arrested for espionage, but being accused of something they didn't do. And I know all too well because I get messages from people on a daily basis seeking my help for a loved one who finds themselves in a predicament where they're saying they didn't do anything. So Kylie, thank you so much for joining me and sharing your story and good luck with your book. Thanks so much for having me on, Raphael. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to Second Chance Podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. Quick reminder that you can find the video interviews of our YouTube channel at Second Chance Podcast. Please subscribe and follow us to be notified of new episodes. Please share our episodes with your friends, family and colleagues and follow us on YouTube and your preferred podcast platform for updates on new episodes. Your feedback is crucial to the growth of our podcast. Please rate and review our episodes and let us know your thoughts in the comments section. You can also listen to my interview with Kylie in my audiobook, You Are Accused, also available on Audible. Click the link on the description or search You Are Accused by Raphael Rowe to get your copy. This podcast was brought to you by Second Chance Media Productions. Audio Avalanche handles audio editing. J. Rowe Productions created the original soundtrack. Studio Minerva designed the eye-catching cover. Social media marketing agency Scribble manages and creates the social media content. If you haven't already, please follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook and LinkedIn. Just look for Second Chance Podcast with me, Raphael Rowe. Thanks for tuning in. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.